Good morning, everyone. Thank you all for being here on this rainy day. Um, one of the best things I find about living in DC is that you can meet interesting people anywhere you go. Uh, in that vein, I got to know our speaker today, Simon Johnson, because we have a regular tennis lesson together every Friday night at Rock Creek Park. Um, so not only is Simon a master of the slice serve, he is also the Kurtz Professor of Entrepreneurship at the MIT School of Management. Simon is a former chief economist at the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. He's worked on global economic crises and recoveries for 30 years and published hundreds of articles in places like the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. His most recent book is called Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. The book explores the history and economics of major technological transfer transformations up to and including the latest developments in artificial intelligence. Uh, his book has been on several lists of the best nonfiction books of 2023. With that, I welcome Simon Johnson. Uh, thanks, Nora. Thanks for the nice introduction. Great pleasure to be with you all uh, today. And um, as, as, as I said to Clark, I've given this talk many times in many parts of the world, and, and I will, I will do the same for you, but I've heard myself speak many times. What interests me is your reactions, your thoughts, so we have plenty of time for, for question and answer. And, and I think the, the, the key issue of, of today and, and, and many days is what kind of jobs are, are you going to have or your children going to have or your grandchildren going to have? And at least in my experience, this is definitely true in Washington but many other places, people on that issue divide roughly into two camps. One are people who are, let's call them extreme techno-optimists who say, this is an amazing new technology, AI, generative AI, chat GPT, whichever version you prefer. It is going to so transform productivity that we're going to have plenty like we couldn't believe, and then we're going to have a question of how to hand it out to people and how we're going to manage the, the enormous amount of leisure that they're confronted with. That's the techno-optimist view. The techno-pessimist view is also quite extreme, and it's, oh my goodness, all the jobs are going to go away. They're going to go away very quickly, and we're going to be dealing with a problem of mass unemployment of the kind we haven't seen since at least the 1930s. Actually, endemic unemployment of educated people, which is a characteristic of some countries in the world, not uh, typically characteristic of, of, of this country uh, most of the time. So just to give you my bottom line and, and, and the summary of the, the, um, our position from the, the, with the group that I work with at MIT, I'll tell you a little more about them in a moment, is it's not the extreme techno-optimism. It's not the extreme, actually we're not particularly techno-optimistic, although I have some positive things to say and some encouraging things that we, we could, ideas that we could pursue. We're not also the extreme pessimists in terms of mass unemployment, but we are very worried about the polarizing effect of this technology on the American, American society, loss of a lot of good jobs, and I'll talk about how we, what, 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 how that's played out in the past, um, we are very worried about the effect on the rest of the world. So the US has got some problems coming. We have to confront those problems quickly. We are struggling, as you have noticed, uh, to um, apply our, our longstanding and, and, and very effective democracy in, in this country to, in, in a productive way to these, to these problems. Uh, and we'll talk about that. Um, but I think we can find some solutions, and this is a very innovative society. This is a society that is good at coming up with solutions to problems like this. The rest of the world, not so much. The rest of the world, I would say there's at least six billion people who live in countries that already struggle to keep um, their heads above water, and, and I think they're going to have even more problems here. So the book 
is, is called uh, Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. It's with a very good friend and a long-time co-author of mine, Jeron Asimoglu, who's an institute professor um, at MIT. And we have a, a, a research uh, group at MIT called Shaping the Future of Work, which is housed in the economics department, although I work in the business school. Um, and uh, we welcome you to visit our website. We have lots of events there. We, we record things. We uh, have many, many, many ways for you to, to, to learn more and to look at the debate. And there is an active debate around these issues because, of course, the technology, while we have seen plenty of antecedents and, and we have seen a lot happen over the past, let's say, year, and ChatGPT took off, we, this is early days for this technology. The technology is also advancing at, at a pace that amazes even the, the deepest, most experienced experts. They did not anticipate what we've seen over the past year. So that's something that, that should uh, give you some, some, some reason to, to think about it and, and to pursue it. This, the, the, the book is 500 pages. Uh, it's, it's really good for slamming podium. I'll try not to do that and mess up the recording. Um, you, you can also buy it on Kindle. And, and all I would say about that is, for any book you want to buy, not speaking specifically about this book, uh, keeping an eye on, Kindle, on, on Amazon and Kindle and Kindle sales is always a good idea. That's, I'm going to li limit my remarks to that. Um, so we had at MIT uh, about 10 days ago a big AI generative week, a sort of a jamboree celebration of, and, and a coming together, a convocation of, of um, people interested in this space. I think we had 1,200 uh, people signed up for the main sessions, uh, 800 of them actually showed up. And, and I would summarize that whole three days in, in, as follows. So we had, we had people there from uh, creative academic type people, we had business finance type people, and we had some policy people. The creative academic people said, this is great. We, I can do things now that I couldn't possibly imagine. We've extended the boundaries of, of, of what humans can achieve. And we can upskill workers who were, who were previously um, struggling to, to get good incomes. They can become upskilled. As they get upskilled, they get paid more money. I'll talk about that. So there's definitely an element of truth to that. The business finance people said, this is great. We can fire people or we can let people go. <laughs> We can let people go. One person said to me afterwards that, that he runs a call center in, in the uh, medical health insurance business, and a, a call used to take seven minutes on average. And now it takes six, because the transcription of the call, which is a very important part of, of what has to be done, is now done by AI. It's done better than by the human. So you only need six out of seven workers. He's not firing people, but he's not hiring people to replace people who leave. Another friend of mine uh, works with global consumer products, let's call it, um, has identified and is working uh, on, 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 a, on a project that involves replacing, for every 10 product planners, a product planner in global business of this nature is, uh, is paid $250,000, a person has an MBA, this is a good job, right, by any standards. Replace 10 of those people with one super analyst paid, let's say, $270,000, who does the work of all the 10 people previously. A super analyst will have an MBA also. So this is effect, this, the potential impact here uh, is um, profound. Oh, the policy people said, this is not great. We don't know what to do. And, and these, these are, uh, I've never seen an issue, actually, in this town with so much constructive bipartisan attention. Okay, behind the scenes, I understand. Maybe it's not what you see in, in public. Behind the scenes, it's not shouting. It's really thinking hard about what are the consequences, how do you manage this, what's, uh, what's the economic implications, what's the national security implications. A lot of people engage with this, and, and there will be some things that come out of it. I'll talk about that in a few minutes, but not much, and not much compared to the size of the phenomenon we're facing. So why, why is our baseline view uh, relatively, relatively pessimistic? Well, the problem is um, that if you look over the past 
And, and, and American history, by the way, has been, in American history, we've been very good at creating good jobs, well-paying jobs for people. I'll talk about that history in a moment. But in the last 40 years, that's not what we've done. In the last 40 years, this so-called digital transformation, the arrival of the PC and so on, what it really did was enhance the productivity of relatively highly skilled people, highly educated people, including, I'm guessing, many people in this room. Middle skill, middle income, middle education people, people who uh, finished college but nothing more, people who didn't finish college, people who didn't go to college, Many of those, many people in, in those categories, uh, particularly men, but it's also true for women, actually earn hardly, literally a little bit more than they did in the 1960s, and some of them actually earn less in real terms. Right? So there was a hollowing out of the middle. Now, there are a number of other factors in this, including globalization, the way that we trade. That's an important one to mention. The decline of trade unions, absolutely. But uh, in our uh, estimation, and, the, and there's plenty of work on this I can point you to, that the impact of technology eroding those jobs, taking away those potential careers, is about 70 to 80% of what happened. So there's a big impact. And uh, people talk about my colleague David Orter at MIT, who's one of the most famous labor economists, um, has done the, the most famous pioneering and most famous work on this. He talks about job market polarization. In other words, the people at the top did well, the people in the middle lost out, they got pushed down to the bottom. At the bottom, they compete with people who have less skill, so you have an intense competition there. And a lot of the jobs at the bottom don't require much by way of expertise. So expertise is, means, do you do something that your employer cannot easily find by opening the door and saying, all right, who else wants to apply for this job? Do you have some accumulated expertise in, in what you do? And the problem is at the lower end of the labor market, there's a lot of positions that don't have that much expertise and don't get paid a high wage. Now, as I'll say, in the, in the US, I think we've got some opportunities and, 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 and may do better in terms of, of reacting to this. Uh, around the world, um, we see societies that are less innovative, that are less able to deal with disruption. Those, those societies have had an increase in the middle class uh, during this period. That's part of how globalization has worked, for example, in China, but also India and other places. But a lot of those jobs involve clerical work. A lot of them are the kind of white-collar work that's already being replaced uh, by algorithms. And if you think about manufacturing, which is obviously a big part of what those countries do, particularly China and other parts of East Asia, um, generative AI has hardly touched manufacturing yet because manufacturing is not a highly digitized environment. But I can assure you that this is a priority for people in manufacturing and making it digitized and bringing AI to those tasks is absolutely on the agenda of, of leading companies there. So that's, that's my uh, initial uh, pessimistic note. But, but it, it can be different and, and we can do better in, in, the, in, this, in this country. And to think about that, let me just take you back in history more than 150 years to the Great Exhibition of London in 1851. So that this was the, there were many great exhibitions that you've heard about in the 19th century. This was the first one, and the British had this idea of inviting everyone from around the world to come, come and display their industrial achievements. Compare and contrast, you know, um, and, and the British had some bias to their own stuff, but they were, it was really an open invitation for everyone. The Americans showed up with stuffed animals, as in animals they killed, and the guns they'd used to shoot them. That was the American contribution in 1851. In 1890, in 1890, the United States was the largest industrial power in the world. The United States had surpassed the UK, they'd surpassed Germany, they'd surpassed France. How did they do that? How did our uh, forebears and the people who came before us do that? Well, it's very interesting because this society in the mid-19th century had a lot of relatively unskilled labor. We had a lot of immigrants without much education. We had a lot of African-Americans who 
after the Civil War were um, freed from that, but didn't have a lot of education. Um, and the people who built US manufacturing figured out ways to develop and deploy machines so they could be used by somebody who was initially not very skilled, or let's say didn't have a lot of education, but that person could build expertise in managing the machines, in learning how to operate in that environment, and it's that expertise that creates the basis for higher compensation. But, of course, I have to give a big shout out to the trade unions, so I think this is the headquarters behind me, quite an appropriate setting. So the rise of trade unions was an important part of workers saying, hey, we are now a lot more productive, we have this expertise, we want to share in, in these enormous profits, and if you're familiar with the history of the American labor movement, there was a lot of struggle uh, along the way. Now, um, we know what AI is going to do over the next 20 years. It is going to automate away some positions. That's what this kind of technology does. You replace people with machines. Let's be very honest about that. But the key issue is, do you also create new jobs? And specifically within jobs, if you break down what is a job, every job has a number of tasks in it. And what you really need, and in episodes in the past where this has gone relatively well, you want to create new tasks. So, when Henry Ford first came to Detroit, I understand that Henry Ford had a lot of reprehensible attitudes, and I'm not recommending him as a person, but, but his career is remarkable, and it, and it does show you what, what can happen when things go well. When he started, um, right before he started up in Detroit, the American car industry made 2,400 cars a year. So it was an artisanal product. It was a very expensive product. In 1929, Ford and GM each made 1.5 million cars, and the American auto industry employed 400,000 people, many of whom were making good money. Now, Henry Ford did two things. He brought car production onto an assembly line, and he brought electricity to that assembly line. These were really fundamental changes with big impacts on productivity. But, be very clear, he was replacing some of the tasks that people had done with what these machines now did. But he also created an enormous, he and the people around him, there was a big class of manager engineers who worked on this, created an enormous number of new tasks. And it's those new tasks that drove up the demand for labor, combined that with a strong trade union movement in the 1930s, there were some big struggles. Put that together and you have higher wages, you have the beginnings of a strong middle class, and in the post-war period, 1950s, 60s, and 70s, that's what the US was really good at. And that's what other countries also emulated. This, this American, so-called American system of manufacturing making unskilled or less educated people highly productive and then paying them good wages. That spread around the world and that's, that's the, the heart of what, um, of the post-war prosperity um, in what we now call developed countries or Western Europe, United States um, and, and a few other places. Japan, certainly. Now, the good news about AI, so I, I mentioned that my, my creative uh, academic colleagues are very excited because not only can you do things with AI that you couldn't do before, but it does definitely have the potential to upskill less experienced workers. So for example, in, in, a, in a call center, this has been studied. Uh, I mean, the, the field is it's a very young field. We don't have that many studies, but this is some very careful researchers have established that if you provide a sort of um, what, what Microsoft it calls in a branded way, but we can also refer to it in a more generic way as a co-pilot. So an AI that doesn't try to do your job, but it advises you. And if this co-pilot is trained on appropriate data, like from within in your company, if it shares the expertise of your people, then you can easily imagine 
an inquiry comes in, this is a, a technical call center that they studied, an inquiry comes in, the co-pilot is immediately, because you know how quick these things are, giving, you, giving the human ideas about what to say and what the problem could be, but then the human decides how to use that information. So if you do this, you raise the, you increase the capacity of people in the call center, you particularly help the least experienced, that makes sense, right? Because what does it mean to be less experienced? It means you just haven't thought about and seen as many situations, so the co-pilot can provide those to you. The satisfaction of the people they're helping goes up, so that's also good. Whether or not they pay them more money for this, <laughs> the study did not address. Um, but, but in terms of upskilling workers, so allowing workers with less education to be more productive, to build expertise, yes, there is absolutely potential there, and that is um, extremely, extremely encouraging. The, the, the problem, of course, the question is, once this co-pilot gets really good, how many humans do you need? We spent some time talking to um, uh, some Hollywood writers who were on strike and who were organizing the, their arguments and, and so on. Um, very thoughtful people. And, and they had focused, uh, and, and their settlement addresses, so we'll see how long this, that, that works, the issue that... With this technology, it is already possible for a studio executive to tell GPT or Gemini, whichever version you prefer, um, a potential idea for a story. It will, it will, and, and you can tell it what you want, this, how many episodes you want, and so on. It'll provide a script, and then you could hire somebody straight out of film school to make it look like a human wrote that script. Right. So what you need there is is the top expert or the person who was most good at office politics, whoever you think Hollywood works. The person at the top. And then you need a junior person, a human type, but, but not a person with a lot of experience. So on the one hand, you've upskilled the person right out of film school, but what happened to all those people in the middle? What happened to all those, what happened to the highly skilled people, but they're not at the top or the bottom? Now, I did have a chance to speak with Satya Nadella about this on Monday. Okay, Satya Nadella is the CEO of Microsoft, people, okay? You know, he is right, he is up there above, which whoever your icons of technology are at the moment, Satya Nadella is on that pantheon, or if, if not above it. Very nice guy, very smart, and I'm sure he'll be entirely comfortable talking to your congregation. We should invite him, in fact, we should invite him to come give a book talk, because he will have a book out. Uh, that, would be, that, would be a, that would be a coup, Nora. Um, and, and I shouldn't tell you what he said, because that... It's probably uh, unreasonable, but what I said to him was that you know this is a fantastic opportunity for business as well as for an important issue socially. Because if if un upskilling becomes a business strategy, if we think about how to compete among ourselves and with the world on the basis of we can provide, we we can help our workers be more productive using AI. So what we call worker friendly or worker augmentation using AI, that's a strategy, and that's a strategy which we argue can be highly profitable for, um, for companies. And you know, I, there's a lot of discussion about shareholder capitalism uh, in this country and whether or not it's a problem. I would point out that in the 1920s, leading advocates of shareholder capitalism, um, I have a, a, a favorite, uh, Magnus Alexander, who was an engineer, who was head of one of the leading um, organization of, of manager engineers, he uh, said, this is, this is a great country because we, are, we work hard, we pay our workers well, they're amazingly productive, and then they have enough money to buy our products, like Henry Ford's cards, right? That articulation of shareholder capitalism is not the current articulation, I'm afraid. And that's not the, um, what we heard from our, from our business 
finance colleagues at the MIT Generative AI Week. In fact, they were so candid and so forthright about what they're intending to do, in the short run anyway, in terms of reducing employment, that they asked us to delete the tape after that session. And you, you, we can only record people. You, you should have had me sign some paperwork, by the way, Clark, uh, on this. You can only record people and use that recording if they give you permission. So I'm afraid you have to uh, rely on me to tell you what they said, because you can't look that one up for yourself. Um, there are policy things we can do. I mean, you live in Washington. You know, there are always policy things that can be done. And there are at least three, I think, constructive ideas around which you could find reasonable bipartisan consensus now. Uh, Senator Schumer and his colleagues are running a, a, a very, well, running a, a, a policy forum process that's a, as inclusive as they can. There are plenty of people in the House who are also thinking about this. As I said, it's bipartisan. I think um, organizing grand challenges and asking the question, how can we use AI to really improve outcomes in the education sector for, for kids who are struggling, helping teachers, not replacing them, and also in healthcare, how can we find ways to make sure more people get access to good healthcare, including on preventive healthcare. Those are, those are problems that are not the current focus of the tech sector. And I think that those are crying out for a grand challenges type approach, which we know how to do that as, as, as a government. Um, I think OSHA protections, uh, workplace protections, workplace regulation is also an interesting space because uh, both people on the right and people on the left are worried about surveillance. They, they differ on who they think is surveilling them, but that's okay. <laughs> we can put safeguards in around surveillance. And I think on, on the workplace side, um, if surveillance makes you safer, reduces accidents, reduces harassment, then there's a case for it. But if the surveillance drives you to work harder, you cut corners, the rate of accidents goes up in the warehouse or driving your van around the city, then that's a problem. And I think focusing on that is is completely natural thing to do. And um, I think building the um, AI capabilities of government to deliver government services and improve those services, that's something that OSTP, which is headquarters right behind you over there, uh, is, is absolutely already thinking about. And I think that having an AI capacity in government and, and people in government who know how to use this and use it across agencies is very smart. Problem there is, in case it's not entirely obvious, most of the talented people uh, in terms of tech development have already moved to the, uh, not just the private sector, they moved to the for-profit part of the private sector, in which I include open AI at this point. And, and it, they're, they're leaving places like MIT also. And they're not leaving just for the money, I imagine the money is good, but they're leaving because the interesting problems to be solved, the frontiers, the big data, the compute, is all in the hands of, of the people. Two or three companies driving this around the world. Now, we can talk about China. I, I hope you'll ask me some questions about that. I think the China, the threat of China in this space is, is greatly exaggerated. But I will say in conclusion that our book is going to be published, is, is currently slated to be published in about 20 languages all around the world. Um, but it will not be published in mainland China. And the reason for that is when we've been approached by some publishers, they said, you know, we need to make some small cuts to satisfy the censor. Because we talk about, we talk about democracy, we talk about social media, we talk about Facebook, we're very tough on Facebook. Not, that's not an original criticism, by the way. We're citing some very well-documented studies. And, and, and we lay out what the Chinese have done and, and, are, and apparently plan to do with their version of AI, which is heavy on uh, social surveillance. So surveillance of you, of people like us everywhere, all the time, right? Um, anyway, small, small cuts proposed by the Chinese publisher, small cuts is half the book. Yeah, I'm not gonna do that, thank you very much. Um, I think, look, the, the final summary, and then, and then we have plenty of time for questions, is there's a choice here. 
It turns out there's always a choice in technology. People who invent technologies, people who present new technologies, like to say, look, this is just happening, get out of the way, we're doing our thing, and everybody will be better off eventually. Next time somebody says that to you, ask them how long they have in mind by eventually, because at the beginning of the British Industrial Revolution, 1780s, when spinning and weaving of cotton was revolutionized by machines, and these were big productivity gains, there was also transformation of coal mining, there was transformation of metalworking, 1780s. We know for a fact that small children as young as six in the 1840s, 60 years later, would spend 10 to 12 hours a day deep underground, six days a week, pushing coal carts with their heads. That was a job for children. 60 years after the Industrial Revolution transformed productivity. So there's always a choice. There's a choice that's made by us. There's a choice that's made by us as consumers, as voters, as people who think about policies, people who have this kind of discussion. And the choice is, do you want a technology that's going to be more helping people, more augmenting people, more solving our human problems, or do you want a technology that is predominantly displacing people and sending them off to scramble to figure out for themselves how to survive? Thank you very much. Questions, please. Uh, so, in an interview with Sam Altman, the once and future CEO of OpenAI, uh, he said that it's useless to predict how people are going to use generative AI because it's un completely unpredictable. All you can do is release it into the market and see how people use it and how people, uh, society responds to it. But there's also this military saying, a plan is useless, but planning is essential. So what should people be thinking about and doing right now, in your opinion? Yeah, I'll just summarize the question for the recording. So very good question of whether we know what AI, generative AI is going to do and, and whether we, how we can prepare. You know, so first of all, we're not anti-technology. We're not anti-technological progress. We don't think you can stop or pause the development or deployment at this point of, of AI. Let's be clear. Well, I also work at MIT, the word technologies in, the title, in my job title, right? So you wouldn't expect that. But I think that um, attempting to develop alternatives, looking for ways to find worker augmenting AI, um, as, as, as business people, as entrepreneurs in the policy space, um, that's the sort of thing the Department of Defense, Department of Defense greatly accelerated self-driving cars, as you may remember, with their grand challenge, the prize money for which in the first round was $1 million. $1 million got everybody excited about, can we build self-driving cars driving around the desert? And that started, that really accelerated. Now, I do think self-driving car conversation would have continued without that, or would have developed without that, but they accelerated it. So looking for accelerants of human, um, human augmenting AI. And I think also, um, my, my friends who play basketball tell me that um, you take zero, you, you score zero, um, what's, what's the saying? Zero percent of the shots you don't take. of the shots you don't take, right? So if, if you've, Economists, are very, economists like me are very big on unintended consequences. I mean, that's, we, hold, we love the whole dismal science thing, right? But what about, but my, my point in this context would be if you don't have, um, if you don't try to solve the problems in education and healthcare, you're very unlikely to solve them, right? There's a law of intended consequences. You've got to actually try. So I, I think looking for ways to apply AI in constructive, important areas and in ways that help people particularly lower skilled, less educated people, be more productive. I think that's what we should be attempting. So develop, automation is going to happen, try to develop those new tasks. That's my bifurcation. Yes, in the middle. Um, and then just kind of off that use, with the upcoming election, how is generative AI going to impact kind of 
I guess, like Instagram posts and when people are going to be like, hey, that's generative AI. And how is that going to kind of play into what's real and what's fake? Yeah. And then as AI starts to gain more power and be involved in higher decision making, how can the general public trust when an AI company, like you said, is these three, three companies are kind of taking over uh, with people and all the data, how can the general public know that what they're saying is true behind the scenes when even themselves, the AI, they don't really know exactly, it's like the black box theory. How can the general public attribute their actions with the AI system and actually what's going on behind the scenes? Yes, so two, two questions there. Uh, I'll take them in reverse order. So the black box nature of this technology is very important. So, and, and obviously there's plenty of black boxes to consumers. So if I asked you to stand up here and explain the internet, you probably would struggle. But this, is, this, this technology is a black box even to the experts. They don't know how it acquired capabilities. What they believe is, which seems plausible, that as you increase the amount of data that's being used to train these models, um, you... Um, have nonlinear effects, so you get you gain more capability. Um, and right now, there's an arms race between these companies to train the next generation of models. And at least some reports say that they are planning to train the models in the Middle East, because first of all, there's not enough electricity in the United States to do the model training. And secondly, why drag the fossil fuels halfway around the world if you could just set it up in I don't know Qatar, Saudi Arabia, UAE, something like that? Right? So that's a lot of electricity. That's a big technological. Uh, arms race, and, and they have no idea what's inside, what, what drives the model, what drives the results. It's all heuristics uh, at this point. So that's a problem. Um, the, on the real and fakes, so I have a colleague at MIT. Um, I wrote him an email recently, said, let's call him Bob, uh, can you give me a call? Here's my number. And he wrote back to me saying, how do we know each other and when do we last meet? And that's because the various enterprises he's involved with are quite convinced that authentication through the way you authenticate when somebody reaches out to you and you speak to them, what you're, you're authenticating their identity because you recognize their voice. And that's true of your business associates. It's also true of your children or your relatives, by the way. That is not an adequate form of authentication, according to experts in the field, because my voice can be easily, I mean, you, my voice is readily available in lots of recordings like this one. My voice can be... Uh, simulated, um, and you can also uh, know a lot about me. Okay, maybe I should delete this bar for the tape. You can know a lot about lots of people from other things, things they've said in public. So you can actually simulate that conversation quite effectively. So I said, to, I said to Bob, um, you know, we had lunch together on Tuesday, and you had the roast beef sandwich, right? So I, I authenticated myself by using data that was not digitized because I don't think the me pretty sure the menu, and certainly what he ate, was not written down anywhere. So I think we all have to think about that, and I think that, and that's, this is a warning about personal security and safety, by the way, and when your relatives call you up and ask you for money, you know, how do you determine it really is, that really is a genuine request? Uh, because any, anything digital, anything, anything voice, anything video can all be faked. So for politics, on a bipartisan basis, I think we're going to see a lot of, um, we're going to have a lot of questions about what's real and what's fake. And it's very, I mean, I think it's basically, it's basically impossible to tell. Um, there are a few small details that experts can use still, but I, I'm not even sure that those will, that'll still be the case by um, November of next year because the technology is, is advancing, is advancing so fast. Yes, in the back. Well, but to go back to your earlier point, we have a choice, right? So just to accept, oh, it's a black box, oh, we can never understand it. 
I push back against that a little bit. I think that there's absolutely the capability to push back against these companies who are developing this technology and say, well, you have to put that into the beginning of the model, right? There's no reason why we can't say that you do those things or you don't do it at all. I mean, there are plenty of other examples of that happening. Well, uh, it is true that in some sectors we, we do have more proactive regulation. Although it's also true, if you, look at, if you look at the history of regulation in the US, you look at railways, you look at the manufacturing industry, you look at telecommunications, look at even pharmaceuticals. Most, in most of those instances, regulation in the US came after problems had already been demonstrated. Uh, Meatpacking industry, for example, right? So we, we, are, we don't have a very strong proactive tradition of regulation on the whole in this country. We, we also... Um, we, we, we also have not, the, 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 um, the deal with this sector, since at least the 1990s, but I think you go back further, was also ex post regulation of problems, not proactive, including for everything that led to social media. And I think that was a mistake, but. Um, and, and it is also the case, I mean, your experience may be different, but when in this, in this town, whenever we have this kind of discussion, somebody at the back of the room says, <coughs> China, which kind of shuts down the discussion because the, the China card is played, I think. I think this is, this is excessive and inappropriate, but I definitely see it being played to say that it's in our national security to develop this technology as quickly as we can. And if we don't, China will just get ahead of us. Yes, please. For sure. I wasn't suggesting that the technology isn't, shouldn't be developed and isn't useful, but I do think that there are ways in which, in the context of political campaigns, for example, that you can put governors on the way the technology is used. I mean, I don't think it's going to be perfect, but I just think that your earlier point about we have a choice needs to be something yeah. that continues to be raised throughout these conversations, because there's so many different contexts in which this is going to be used. Absolutely, yes. In the political context, yes, you're quite right. There could be you know, agreements, there could be legal restrictions on what you can use in campaigns, how you use it. Absolutely, very good point. I, I was talking about the technology development more broadly, which is harder to, harder to regulate. This gentleman's been waiting for a long time. Thank you. Um, Seems to me corp public corporations are always facing time issues. Uh, they have to meet quarterly reports and that sort of stuff. Training, on the other hand, can take a long time. Uh, so for a corporation, it's a lot easier to hire somebody with the skills you need rather than training. Uh, is the, uh, are corporations doing a good job of training their own? And if not, uh, are um, community colleges and other institutions capable of picking up the slack? I think you know the answer to both those questions. <laughs> That's why you're asking. <laughs> the question is about, you know, do, do companies in the U.S. do enough training of workers uh, and can co community colleges pick up the slack if there, if there is slack? And I think the answer is on both that we have a problem because that's not, those are not core competencies. Of the, that's not the, the focus of the, the American corporate sector. And, and community colleges, you know, it's mixed, but ha have struggled. The good news about generative AI, to try and be a little bit more positive, is that it creates possibilities to educate yourself, right? So um, the, the internet did this uh, early on. Um, social media messed it up a lot. Um, but there, it does provide you with the opportunity to have expert advice, coaching, learning. That's one. The second thing is very interesting. Um, I have a colleague at MIT who has a big lab. In the lab, and they work on better communication between humans, he has some um, computer science graduates who do the traditionally have done the coding work, or good at coding, and he has some anthropology, ethnography people, people who think about human interactions and try to, you know, psychologists and so on. He says that since ChatGPT arrived, the productivity 
of the non-quantitative, non-programming people has not just gone up, it now exceeds that of the programming people. Because ChatGPT can write Python code for you, can write a lot of different kinds of, kinds of code. Um, and, but the, and then the question is, do you understand, do you have a deeper understanding of the human difficulties and, and human problems that, that, that you're trying to, to, to solve? I do, by the way, have, a, have a, uh, one of my fascinating colleagues at MIT, you can look up her work uh, by the name of Sherry Turkle, whose who's, uh, latest talk that I had the good fortune to attend is called, um, Who Do We Become uh, When We Talk to Machines? And she studied human-machine interaction since the Tamaguchi, those pets yet to keep alive, first arrived, and she spent a lot of time on AI. And if you, there are, I think her estimate is between two and four million people in the United States right now who have an AI friend, uh, an, an intimate friend, I mean, I don't mean, one, I mean, intimate as in they share their personal life, they, they, they confide in them and so on. And, and she says that if you, in, in her studies, if you show the person, you strip away the capabilities of the AI and you show them the building blocks, at least, to, to the extent they can be shown, the person will say, typically, well, that's really interesting. Yes, I do understand this is a technology and so on and so forth. Can I have my AI friend back now? Because they're looking for empathy. And, and it is sad, and that's what Sherry says. What people are looking for is it's simulated empathy, but it's simulated so effectively, and I think it's relative to other forms of empathy that are available to these people, it, it is something that they are seeking and something they're getting from this. And, and then where does that lead in terms of human interaction or human individual uh, what we are as individuals and who we are, uh, how we interact. That, you should look at Sherry's work on that. But I think on, on, the, on the positive side, learning from AI, being coached, improving your capabilities, and using it to do those tasks that you're not good at, there's some interesting possibilities there. Okay, so lady at the back. Um, I have a question about uh, the data that the models are trained on. So if you have data that has right, in terms of early question, for example, when you think about access to credit or if the data that is being used to generate outcomes has bias because of the previous history yes. of bias, how do you identify that? Yeah, so look, there's a couple of really important issues on, on data. Well, first of all, they're using your data, right? Every time, you, every time you use a search engine, by the way, they use your questions and then what you click on to train the search engine. It's just like that with generative AI. And if you ask the people who lead these companies about this, which I have done, uh, they say, that's the deal. That if you want to use the consumer version, you are providing your data for free. And so there's a very interesting discussion about whether we should do that, whether we should agree whether we can put some sort of conditions on, on how we use our data and who can use our data to do what and so on. Because your data could be used to train the AI to do things that you would regard as completely immoral or worse, right? Um, now, you raised a very important point about bias. And I think this is something that, so there's a lot of people who study this right now. And I think this is, this is a question which, a problem that's well articulated and we might make some progress on it. We don't know what's inside the black box, but we can see when biased outcomes appear. And what's also very interesting to, to flag, and we should recognize this, I think, is that humans are intrinsically biased in many situations, and um, you should never, ever appear, apparently, before a judge whose football team lost on the weekend. It, it changes the outcomes, right? So take the legal advisors, be, you know, you can use that one for free. Um, so I, I think understanding, and this is also true in um, radiology, for example. So the humans make some mistakes, the machines make some, some mistakes, but if we're trying not to replace the human, and a lot of this comes up in, the, in the, um, this obsession with the Turing test, complete um, 
the, 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 uh, we talk about this in the book, the, the uh, tradition within computer science that's become predominant is based on this idea of Alan Turing that you could, the question, but can you make a machine that can simulate human capabilities? So can, a, can my algorithm be a human at chess? Can my algorithm be a human at Go? Can my algorithm run a self-checkout kiosk at the grocery store? Okay, you're, you're trying to replace people. And, and, the, and the other tradition in computer science that, that is long-standing but not dominant is trying to augment people, as, 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 as we've been discussing. So I think that the, the, the right focus here is thinking about how to use AI to reduce the bias of humans or make the humans more aware of their bias and then reduce the bias. Uh, one friend of mine at Berkeley is working on an uh, AI that will help doctors uh, combat fatigue or understand when they're fatigued or think about, because all our, de all our decision making, I mean this is not specific to doctors, right, but doctors do get very fatigued um, and they make big decisions when they're, when they're fatigued, so do air traffic controllers. So understanding what, am I fatigued, what does that look like, how is my decision making changing during the day, that could be very valuable also. But again, not replacing doctors or air traffic controllers actually at this point, actually just trying to help them be more, achieve what they want to achieve as humans. Like that, that's legitimate. And I, I mean, perhaps there are some humans who want to be biased. I think a lot of humans don't want to be biased. A lot of humans believe they're not biased, and that's something we're grappling with, right? Okay, yes, please. I have a question. You mentioned uh, that you had not seen AI move too much in the manufacturing yet. Yet. Uh, but the Department of Defense, uh, the Department of Energy's national laboratories are doing a lot, pushing a lot on the notion of model-based systems engineering, digital engineering, in which you create a model of a particular component or some assembly that you want to build. And then at some point, you can link that model to uh, an additive manufacturing right. uh, capability. Um, I guess the interest of the DOD and, and the DOE is that you can uh, expand the, the range of vendors and therefore reduce the cost of, of, of parts. But is there a, uh, are we all looking at that and its impact on employment? Because it seemed that that, if that materializes, yeah. you're going to take a lot of individuals that are in that chain now from design to actual manufacturing uh, out of the Right, yes, yeah, so that is something we're looking at. We have a project with our, so a couple of colleagues in the mechanical engineering department at MIT um, who are specialists on additive manufacturing, actually. Because there are, there are some, I mean, there, and there are some very sensible DOD applications, such as being able to manufacture a spare part at a remote location and, and be able to manufacture any spare part at a remote location. So there's, you know, there's plenty of sensible things to be explored there. Uh, I think the, um, and we can talk about additive manufacturing and whether that's particularly uh, the scalability of that and so on. But I think that the, the problem here is, this is where, why there's going to be a big problem for other parts of the world. Because uh, I actually think that we could do a lot better with manufacturing in this country. I think we could expand a lot more manufacturing output even before AI. And I think AI is going to help that. We won't create a lot of jobs because it will be highly uh, automated for the reasons you just mentioned. There are many countries around the world that who's, who believe their pathway to prosperity is selling things to using cheap labor, at least for a while, and then becoming more productive and wages hopefully rise. Now, I think the need for that kind of globalization um, is going to be diminished. The carbon footprint of, the, of moving goods around the world is pretty enormous, right? So that's also going to be an, an issue. And I think if you think about resilient supply chains, some countries we're happy to do business with, and, and you know, countries that sold us ventilators that they made when we needed them, and so did they during COVID. I don't think like Ireland did that. We don't have a problem with that. But other countries where supply chains may be politically dependent, and it might be just that they need the products, or it might be that we have some other conflict with them, for example, China, that I think is absolutely 
uh, a very salient issue. So I think there are solutions coming to manufacturing, and I think they're also beyond add, beyond uh, additive manufacturing because as you digitize. Um, my, my family made screws in Sheffield in the north of England for more than 100 years. That's my industrial background. And, and these were very simple uh, machines and, and very simple product. But you can, you can digitize these, ki these kinds of environments. It, it, and now there's a massive incentive to do it because now you can use, once it's digitized, you can apply the, the latest tools of AI. So I, I'm convinced that's coming. Maybe it's a two or three year horizon just because of the digital conversion issues, but it's coming. I think we have time for one more quick question. Okay, last question. Who has the last question? You already asked a question. At the back. <laughs> so your description of, of um, AI <coughs> augmenting the capacity of doctors and then of nurses, home health aides, that very much resonates in terms of a future of healthcare that's much more preventative, upstream, keeping people healthy. Could you talk a little bit about AI and drug discovery and areas of Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, mm -hmm. ALS, different forms of cancer, mm -hmm. where I, I just see tremendous possibility. Yeah. I feel that story is not being told as much as it could be. Uh, well, it's being told in the, in the, in the industry among specialists. It, it is very exciting, particularly chemistry, the underlying uh, how fast you can uh, you know, explore potential compounds that can be used. Also, how much you can use existing information if you have a big library in your own data. Um, the, the constraint there is obviously human trials. So right now you have to, you, you can't, um, you need, you need to recruit the humans. You can use AI to recruit them faster, by the way. And you can use AI to optimize. But you're probably not trimming a lot of years off the, that process, which takes you know, three to five years, depending on what you're talking about. One day, maybe soon, I don't know, um, you'll be able to simulate those human trials using an AI that has demonstrated to the FDA that it can match characteristics of the human population that you're trying to treat. Now, that might be a long way off, or it might be around the corner, but you can see what that would do, right? Because then you shortcut the whole process. Um, I, I don't think we're there yet. And, you know, and I do think this is a, a technology with amazing and fantastic capabilities. I think the question is, you know, do those get shared, and do they, who benefits? Is it a few people at the top? Um, is it people who already have uh, a lot of education? Is it people who graduate from M MIT? Or is it everybody? Because there's a real potential for everybody, everybody to gain. But I don't think that's the default. I don't think that's what will happen naturally. I don't think that's what comes out of our business philosophy or, or political process in this country. Although I think we'll react. I think we're, we, we do. Um, it's, I was not born in this country, as, as I already mentioned. And, and uh, Winston Churchill, uh, as, as you may recall, his mother was American. And uh, he liked to say, or at least is quoted as having said, the Americans always do the right thing after first having exhausted all the other possibilities. <laughs> So. That's a good place to